Genesis chapter 1. We'll look at some passages in both Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. Today is a sermon we're entitling The Gift of Marriage Part 2. I did part 1 two weeks ago, and if you missed that, it'd be helpful if you maybe reviewed that later on this week because I'm going to assume some things. I'm going to assume you are aware of the vital truths we talked about in part one, where we talked about a working definition for marriage as being one flesh together. Today we want to draw on some, some other truths, some other important truths related to marriage. And I realize, I realize not everyone here is married, but I do think, I do think there's something here for everyone. And here's why I say that. Because today we want to we want to draw from various verses some some truths about gender as it relates to marriage in particular. So we're focused really on a topic more than a particular passage like we would normally focus. But there is there is massive confusion in our culture related to gender. And And there's a good deal of confusion and certainly controversy related to gender and marriage in the church as well. To claim that there are God-given differences in role between husband and wife is, is to immediately step into controversy and confusion, including in the church. Add to that, in our culture... I would submit a needful reckoning is taking place through what's being called the Me Too movement, where where situations are being exposed of individuals in power who have leveraged their power for sinful and selfish reasons. And God, it seems to me, is bringing evil into the light in certain situations out of His common grace. Add to that, there is a a church-to movement, it's been called. Situations of abuse against women that have been dismissed or diminished in churches and denominations are also being brought into the light, and that too is needful. It is, it is grieving, and it is necessary. So you step back and you realize these areas of gender and roles they, they are timely for us to think about, and they are vitally important. And that led us as elders to say, let's take a part two. Let's not rush through some of these important passages in Genesis too quickly because the book of Genesis really takes us back to the original blueprints in many ways for our humanity. Genesis is like the architect of a building showing you the original design of that building. In these chapters, we have the original divine design for our lives in many ways. So I want to take with you, here's my goal, to take with you a cool-headed approach to a controversial topic. Shall we make that our goal together? A cool-headed approach to a controversial topic looking here in the original blueprints, asking the divine architect to help us understand ourselves better, and especially as that relates to marriage. 
So I want to see with you two, let's call them foundational realities. Two, two realities here in the original blueprints to help us know ourselves better. Two foundational realities about who we are as men and women and as husbands and wives in particular. Here's the first, first foundational reality. Let's call it the equality. First, the equality. Men and women are absolutely equal in dignity, value, and worth. Look with me in your Bible to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27 one more time. Genesis 1, verse 27, we read, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Notice, male and female, male and female, he created them. It is, it is crystal clear from this passage that men and women are, are fundamentally equal. Equally made in both the image and likeness of God. That means we are, we are made like God, and we are made to represent God. And friends, men and women equally share that privilege. And that is a truth we need today in the culture and in the church. We need, we need a, a biblical anthropology a biblical understanding of ourselves. These, these early chapters of Genesis, they are like, like the iPhone 10. You didn't think I was going there, did you? I, I, I've, I've been calling it the iPhone X, but I was corrected by my kids today. It's the iPhone 10, apparently. And I don't have an iPhone 10. Maybe you do, but I don't have one. But I, I am told that it has facial recognition software, which is kind of scary. It unlocks by recognizing your face. So the iPhone 10 can scan your face and says, yes, your phone says, I recognize you. I know who you are. The book of Genesis is trying to do that for us. It's saying, look here in these passages. Let me read your face so you can recognize yourself. So you can know who you are. Do you recognize yourself? Do you look in this passage and realize, male and female, you are equal in dignity, equal in value, equal in worth? As scholar Wayne Grudem puts it, page one of your Bible, page one corrects the error of male dominance. He's right. Genesis 1.27 refutes all times when men seek to act as selfish dictators. And Genesis 1.27 refutes all times when women are treated as in any way inferior. It refutes all times when women are not allowed to be educated, like in some cultures around the world. It refutes the horrors of polygamy and female infanticide refutes any and all expression of abuse against women. Friends, we are to look here and recognize our absolute equality before God. We need today a biblical anthropology, a biblical understanding 
of ourselves. It is, it is striking to me that, that Hollywood, with the events surrounding, surrounding Harvey Weinstein and others, Hollywood has been kind of leading the way into recovering something of a biblical anthropology, unbeknownst to themselves. But shouldn't the church be leading the way? Shouldn't the church, friends, of Jesus Christ be leading the way here? Isn't this a time for the church to be distinct? I appreciated the words of Al Mohler, president of Southern Seminary, flagship of the Southern Baptist denomination, in light of grieving things being exposed in that denomination, Al Mohler, in a blog post, wrote the following. It's a little lengthy, but track with me. Dr. Mohler wrote, There is no excuse whatsoever for abuse of any form, verbal, emotional, physical, spiritual, or sexual. The Bible warns so clearly of those who would abuse power and weaponize authority. Every Christian church, that includes our church, and every pastor, that includes me, and every church member, that includes you, must be ready to protect any of God's children threatened by abuse and must hold every abuser fully accountable. It goes on. The church... And any institution or ministry serving the church must be ready to assure safety and support to any woman or child or vulnerable one threatened by abuse. I could not agree with those words more strongly. All abuse is a denial of this fundamental reality of our equality. Now, we taught on abuse in marriage last October from 1 Peter chapter 3. That's on the website. You can look that up. We also put out in October two resources, and we put them in the back once again. One is a, a chart by John Henderson entitled Marker, Markers of Relational Abuse and Violence. It's taken from a sermon by Jason Meyer from Bethlehem Baptist Church. The second is a brief article, it's very helpful, by Darby Strickland entitled Identifying Oppression in Marriages. I recommend both. I recommend you become educated in the Serena. I want to add here, if you yourself are in a situation in which you are being abused in any way, physically, sexually, or emotionally, the elders of this church want to help. We want to know. We are committed to taking every form of abuse seriously and involving the authorities whenever a crime may have been committed. The absolute authority of men, uh, absolute equality, sorry, absolute equality between men and women must matter to us. So, so first off, Use this facial recognition software, right? Recognize yourself. To the women, do not receive any lie that would say you are inferior. And to the men, let us not believe or perpetuate any lie that we are somehow superior 
That is contrary to the teaching of Scripture. We must believe and live in light of this fundamental foundational reality, our equality in value, dignity, and worth before God. Now, foundational number two, foundational reality number two, the difference. We've seen the equality. We could take all morning on that. It is vital to see. I want to also see, however, with you the difference that husbands and wives have differing roles within their perfect equality. Now turn, if you would, to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. I'm focused here on marriage now. I'm saying husbands and wives have differing roles. I'm focused on marriage because Genesis 2 is focused on marriage. In fact, nowhere in the Bible does Scripture say, all women be subject to all men. It does not say that. You will not find a statement saying, all women submit to men in general. The context here is marriage. I'm focused on marriage. But I want to see with you five pointers, five, five let's call them indicators, of a difference in role between husbands and wives within their perfect equality. Tracking with me? So let's see five indicators, five, five pointers in that direction. Here's the first, the order of creation. First pointer, the order of creation. In Genesis 2, before you, God creates Adam, puts him in the Garden of Eden, we saw, to work it and keep it. He has a vocational calling, work and keep this garden unto the Lord. And then God says, it is not good for this guy to be alone. Verse 18, it is not good that the man should be alone. Verse 18 goes on, I will make a helper fit for him. So God then creates Eve. Now, we said previously the term helper is not one of inferiority. God uses that term of himself. No inferiority is implied in verse 18. But in the text, chronologically, God makes Adam first. You might say, who cares? That's arbitrary. Well, the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, draws on this fact of creation to support differences in role between men and women in the church in 1 Timothy 2. So that's a pointer for us of something unique here, something different about us. Second pointer. Second, the purpose. The purpose of Eve being created for Adam. 2.18 again. 2.18, the Lord God said, It is not good the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Eve being made for Adam, not the reverse, not Adam made for Eve. Again, might seem arbitrary. Tab, you're reading in so much. Well, the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul draws on this fact to talk about a difference in role between husbands and wives in 1 Corinthians 11. It's another pointer here to something that's difference between us in marriage. Third pointer, the naming. The naming of the woman. Here, Adam names Eve, Genesis 2, 23. Genesis 2, 23. Look there with me, please. God brings, God brings Eve to Adam in the first wedding. He escorts her down the aisle, as it were. And Adam, 
appropriately breaks into the first recorded poem. He is jazzed. He is happy to see his bride. And he says, this at last. Remember, he's been naming animals all day long, right? Giraffe, zebra, tiger, parrot, I don't know. What is that? Sees Eve. Lord, at last, at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Notice, she shall be called woman. He names her. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. The ability to give someone a name in Scripture implies a difference in role. You see this in Genesis. God takes a guy named Abram, names him Abraham. God takes his wife Sarai, names her Sarah. It's another pointer, another pointer to something. Fourth, and I think, I think convincingly, fourth, the primary accountability. The primary accountability of Adam. Look at verse 16 now. Genesis 2, 16. We read, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now we'll come back to the fall of mankind, but notice here, before Eve is created, Adam is the one given God's generous command. Adam, you may eat from anything in this garden. It's buffet style. It's all you can eat, fruit and vegetables, which may not excite you, I understand. You're like, well, where's the fried shrimp? Anything at all except one tree. That way you learn how to live under the rule of God's Word in His world. And then Satan comes along, as we'll find, tempts Eve... She eats of the forbidden fruit, and in the text, you'll notice, hands it to Adam. He is right there next to her, the slacker. Takes it. Thank you. I was hungry. I'd love a snack. Genesis 3, 9. Notice what God says. Genesis 3, verse 9. The Lord God called to the man as they are hiding from God after this, and said to him, Where are you? Genesis 3, verse 9. Now, grammatical details are important in that verse. In that verse, God calls to the man, singular. And he said to him, singular, Where are you? Singular. So, in Genesis 3, 9, God is speaking to Adam. First and foremost, and holding Adam accountable first and foremost. That's another pointer or indicator of his primary leadership role. And then, lastly, one more the distortion and restoration. The distortion and restoration. After they sin, God speaks words of judgment to both Adam and Eve. They're both held accountable for their parts. Genesis 3, verse 16. Verse 16. To the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. 
In pain you shall bring forth children. All the moms here can say yes and amen to that. You know what this is talking about. And then God says to Eve, your desire, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now you might have a translation that says your desire shall be for your husband. This is a, an updating of the English Standard Version because they're trying to better catch the sense of this. And the sense is clear when you skip to the next chapter. In chapter 4, where God is speaking to Cain, if you recall Cain and Abel, God is speaking to Cain there in verse 7 and says to Cain, sin is crouching at the door, Cain. Its desire is contrary to you. Its desire is against you. That's the same construction as when God speaks to Eve in Genesis 3.16. So in Genesis 3, track with me, God is saying, your desire will be to resist in some ways Adam's leadership. And to Adam, God says, he's now going to sinfully, quote, rule over you. Adam's temptation becomes to rule by force. By, by greater strength and power to, to abuse his role of authority and, and leadership. So Adam's temptation becomes to turn Eve's godly submission into some kind of subjection. And that's a distortion. So sin does distort God's good design. Absolutely. Sin distorts God's good design. But friends, from Genesis 3 onward, God has been rolling back the effects of sin and rolling back the effects of the fall. Like what you see in Ephesians chapter 5. You don't need to turn there. You might know the passage where husbands are called to die to themselves and love their wives with Christ-like sacrificial love. That's a rolling back of the distortion. And wives are called to affirm and welcome and embrace a husband's godly leadership. So Ephesians 5, read it this way, it's a rolling back of the effects of the fall that you see from Genesis 3 through the power of Jesus Christ. And that power is available to every married couple here and every person here who trusts in Jesus Christ. Whatever your situation, His grace is available to you right now to meet you where you are. If you hear in your marriage is a source of some discouragement for you, look, Jesus is able to meet you and desires to transform you. And I'm going to come back to that. But see with me then, here's my point. See with me in the architect's original blueprints Two fundamental foundational realities, right? Equality. Perfect equality between men and women. We must take that seriously and live in light of that reality. But then second, difference. Differing roles in marriage within our perfect equality. So how do these two things play out? How do we hold them both together? and live our lives in biblically faithful ways. Let me suggest four ways. Let me give you four practical exhortations, okay? 
four exhortations. Here's the first. To all of us. To all of us, let us honor equality and appreciate difference, particularly as it relates to marriage. Honor equality and appreciate difference, particularly as it relates to marriage. You might feel right now like Mark, Mark Twain, who reportedly said, quote, It ain't the parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand that bother me. This might be bothering you. And I understand. In light of how sin distorts, I get that. I get where you're coming from. There's a, a saying in theological circles that I think is helpful for us here. It is this, that misuse does not negate proper use. Misuse of a biblical truth does not negate the proper use of that biblical truth. So just because a a biblical truth is misused and, and misapplied doesn't mean we should chuck the thing all together. It means we should use it rightly and apply it correctly. Now that's important because there's a bigger picture here for all of us. There's a, a bigger thing to see. These are, not, these are not just abstract realities to God. We find equality and difference in role playing out between members of the Godhead. Between the triune God, between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, there is perfect equality, absolute equality in their deity. But you can see indicators of a difference in role in what they do for you and me. Now, I'm not talking about God the Son eternally submitting to God the Father. That's kind of a controversy today. I'm not getting into all that if you're up on that controversy. But when you look at our salvation, when you look at accomplishing our salvation you find the members of the Godhead playing differing roles within their equality. So, God the Father sends God the Son. And God the Son embraces the Father's sending, takes on a human nature to live and die and rise for us. And then, Father and Son send God the Holy Spirit to His people. Do you hear that? The triune God models for us differing roles within absolute, perfect equality. So I ask you this. If God does not have a problem with differing roles within perfect equality, should we have a problem with that? When properly used, when properly applied. See, in marriage, in marriage, God's intention, someone has called, is an ordered equality. I like that phrase. In ordered equality. I have, I have illustrated this before in a certain way. 
I'm going to use this illustration again and beg your pardon for doing so. But Sung and I, we like to ballroom dance. She's a very good dancer. I won't comment on ways I have tempted her. But we, we um, years ago, I was failing to romance my wife, failing to engender fun in our times together. So we, we took ballroom dancing lessons. I'm a very good swing dancer, too. So we did ballroom dancing and swing dance lessons. And we found we really enjoyed it together. I, I can do a mean waltz. I mean, I'm a serious, like, throw-down, world-class waltzer. You just, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. So you got it, right? One, two, three. I can do this all day. In my sleep, I can do that waltz. The waltz or any other ballroom dance is interesting because imagine my bride is here. I'll just let her, let her sit there. Imagine I, I have my hand gently on her waist. I'm holding her hand here. And as we waltz, I gently move her around the room or gently turn her this way. I am providing some leadership. But she is completely equal as my dance partner. I don't want to dance this dance on my own. She is my equal partner but I'm playing a leadership role, providing some direction, and she is gladly receiving that direction. Why? Otherwise, I'm going to be stepping on her toes, or we're going to be wrestling for which way to go, and it's going to look like some kind of wrestling match and not a beautiful ballroom dance. I think that's a picture of ordered equality. Ordered equality. I once heard... I once heard a, a husband say, he woke up early next to his wife and he realized he needed to affirm this truth and began to say, whisper to her, you're my equal, you're my equal, you're my equal. And he talks about how, how right and good it was to out loud affirm their equality. I want to say the husband's. Consider doing the same, but out loud, when she's awake. <laughs> and I want to say to the wives, you might need to do the same. Maybe you've begun to look down on your husband because of his failures or weaknesses. It might be good for both of you later on today to out loud affirm, you're my equal. We honor equality and appreciate difference. That's exhortation number one. Exhortation number two, to the husbands. To the husbands, let us lead and serve with sacrificial love. Let us lead and serve and bless and care with sacrificial love. You see, there are two errors we must avoid as husbands. One is the error of passivity. That is, the failure to take appropriate initiative. Now, wives, of course, take initiative too, but initiative is a good one-word description of the, the general burden of leadership I would submit to you. The general burden of initiative should be felt by the husband. That's what leadership often looks like. So it's godly initiative in the marriage. 
if there's a problem between me and Sung, I need to make sure we're working it out or God's going to say, Tab, where are you? And it means godly initiative with the children. We, we parent together, of course. But there needs to be initiative on my part to make sure we've got a plan for how we are caring for, training and discipling our kids and our teenagers. We need to make sure we have an open Bible in our parenting. That we are parenting from the Word of God and pointing them again and again to Jesus Christ. The era of passivity is when there's a problem with the children, but guys, we say, uh, I'll just let her handle it. Or there's an issue with the finances. We just say, I'm going to avoid that discussion. Or our wives need care or help or encouragement, spiritually speaking, but we neglect her soul. I'll let her friends help her. That's an error of passivity. Alternatively, there's an error of aggression. In our leadership. That's the Genesis 3 distortion. It's ruling harshly instead of loving tenderly. And, brothers, if we can just have a word here, if we persist in that pattern, God will discipline us for our good. 1 Peter chapter 3 is very clear. Our prayers, our prayers will be hindered if we are not living with our dear wives in an understanding way. That is God's loving discipline to help us repent. But this error can be subtle. It's when our, a husband closes his ears and tunes out his wife's help. When he thinks, I don't need her correction, I don't need her thoughts, I don't care about her preferences. I have done that. There have been times when I, I might submit the first few years of our marriage, I closed my ears to Sung's thoughts and Sung's concerns. That was my understanding of leadership. I'm going to lead. And so I steamrolled her concerns and steamrolled her preferences and steamrolled her correction and I was wrong. I was wrong. Jesus, when, when teaching his squabbling band of disciples, thinking about who's the greatest, remember what he did? He said, if you want to be great, be a servant. Oh, if you want to be first, be a slave. Why? For even the Son of Man, Jesus himself, came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for you and me. That's leadership, brothers and sisters. It's not you call all the shots. It's looking to serve more than be served. I have had in now, this, this month marks 20 years of pastoral ministry for me. I've had husbands say to me, my, my wife just needs to submit to me better. My first question is, how are you leading with love? How are you laying down your life for her, brother? How are you 
dying to yourself that you might bless her, serve her, care for her, and yes, provide loving leadership. How, how are you doing that first and foremost? God, God comes to the garden after the disastrous fall of mankind and says, Adam, where are you? So first and foremost, brothers, first and foremost, we look to ourselves. You might ask your wife two questions. Please ask her two questions. Do you feel valued and cared for as my equal? Do you feel valued by me and cared for by me as my equal? Would you ask her that? And then a great follow-up question would be, where would you like me to serve better with Christ-like, loving, godly leadership? Could, relate to, could lead to a maybe painful but helpful discussion. God's Word exhorts us to lead and serve with Christ-like love. Third exhortation, to the wives, to the wives, welcome godly leadership in your marriage. Welcome and embrace godly leadership. For, for the wives, I think there are also two errors for you to avoid. One is also the, area, the error of passivity. When a wife might withhold her God-given wisdom or withhold her God-given insight or or maybe not confront her husband when he needs to be confronted. There may be some confusion for you when you think welcoming leadership means I can't correct him. No, that's passivity. Sung, Sung has reminded me regularly that she is my helper for my sanctification. <laughs> I have not always appreciated that reminder, but she's right. Because then she has argued from Scripture saying, God's Word says, Tab... Exhort one another daily. And then she has told me, rightly, I'm the only one positioned to exhort you daily. And it's hard to argue with that. And I'm glad for her help. Most of the time. Most of the time. Other times I become glad later on. Welcoming leadership does not mean passivity. Ladies... Your husband needs you in the process of change. Just like I do, needing some. There's also, I think, an error of aggression, you might call it. Perhaps that's not a good term. But this is that Genesis 3 distortion that God is addressing Eve about. Your desire will be contrary. Your desire will be against him going forward, Eve. There's some, some rejecting instead of encouraging godly, Christ-like leadership and initiative. And maybe God wants you to make room for him to lead. I had a wife say to me one time, I thought insightfully, she said to me, I'm doing all this stuff for him, and I realized I'm enabling him in his passivity. That was her realization, not my counsel. She said she was enabling her husband to sin in passivity. So she was taking a step back on this issue to help him move forward. 
could be something to consider sometimes. Helping him move forward. Honey, I want you to take the lead here and move us forward. I, I want to add, though, be patient. <laughs> Christ-like sacrifice and Christ-like care, I find, are not easy. So, ladies, may I encourage you, even if his attempts at godly initiative look like a toddler's first wobbly steps, encourage him. Encourage him. Be patient. You're in this together. You're one flesh. I would encourage you, ladies, perhaps to ask your husband, how can I better encourage your attempts at godly leadership and initiative? One more exhortation. The husbands and the wives, and to all of us, brothers and sisters, rely, rely on the Spirit's power. Rely on the Spirit's power. Ephesians 5 Verse 18 is very germane here. Ephesians 5.18 tells us the following. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Or literally, be continually being filled with the Spirit. It's a command, and it's ongoing to you and me. Be continually being filled with the Spirit. Then the Apostle Paul shows us what the effects are of being filled continually with the Spirit. Verse 19, we find one effect. Renewed worship, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Second effect, renewed thanksgiving, renewed gratefulness. Verse 20, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Third effect, verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then... He goes on to show what he means by that verse in three different scenarios, including marriage, where he says, Husbands, love your wives with Christ-like, sacrificial, lay-down-your-life kind of love. And ladies, respect your husband and receive and welcome and affirm that kind of leadership. So, track with me here. There's a grammatical connection, a direct connection between the Spirit's filling, the Spirit's empowering, and the call to lay down your life, husbands, and lead with Christ-like, sacrificial love. And there's a direct grammatical connection between the Spirit's filling, and empowering. And ladies, your call to welcome such godly leadership. Do you see what this means? It means you're not on your own in doing this. It means the Spirit of God wants to help you and empower you and equip you so that you would reflect more and more of Jesus and His bride and His love between you. That's happy news. You're not on your own. God the Holy Spirit wants to meet you and help you this afternoon and tomorrow morning and next week and next month and next year and next decade. Because yes, God's good original design was distorted by sin, but He sent His own beloved Son who lived the perfect life you and I could never live. And then he gave that life, as I, I mentioned earlier, he gave that life as a ransom, a purchase price for you and me to free us from our slavery 
If you are in Christ, you have been freed from slavery to sin by Jesus Christ. You are freed from your selfishness. You are freed from slavery to self-centeredness. You are freed now to love. As husbands, as wives, as men, as women, as teenagers, you have been freed by Christ, by His ransom, to know Him, enjoy Him, and love each other. And the Spirit of God has come to enable you to do that, to bear fruit in keeping with the Spirit's power of love and joy and peace and patience. These resources are yours in Christ. And so we want to end by celebrating Him. We want to end by looking away from ourselves. We want to end by hoping in the Father's love, the Son's finished work, and the Spirit's present power as we take the Lord's Supper together. As the bread and the cup come by, if you're here and you've yet to trust in Jesus Christ, thank you for coming. Thank you for being here. We are honored to have you here. Would you, would you please pass the trays down the aisles because this this celebration is designed for those who have believed. But would you realize with me that sin distorts you also? Sin distorts all of us. But God wants to restore you. God wants to restore a relationship with Him. God wants to Wash away your sin and your guilt and your shame that you could know Him and enjoy Him right now. And so He says, as we read earlier, come to me. God Himself invites you to come to His risen Son, trusting in His life, death, and resurrection. And I urge you to do that even now. Come to Christ, believing. For believers, please, Take the bread, take the cup, hang on to both. We'll take the Lord's Supper together. As you hang on to both, be intentional. Be intentional and reflect on this great hope we have in Christ. That the Father sent His Son. That the Son lived, died, and rose for you. And that the Spirit of God has come to fill you and to empower you. Let us celebrate these truths with the bread and the cup. Would the ushers please come?